Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I rode something like 80K to visit my sisters because uh, I didn't have the money for bus fare. So, I, And then I was like, well, if I could ride 80K, you know, to the next city over, I could ride across the country. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 99 with Lael Wilcox. Lael is a cyclist and her story is mesmerising. She tells it brilliantly herself, so I'll leave her to it, but suffice to say, Lael doesn't seem to have anything in her head holding her back. She just seems to get up and get on with whatever she feels like doing next. I absolutely love this conversation, mostly because it's a rip-roaring adventure story of a woman who found long-distance adventure by chance accidentally became a competition winner and has gone on to inspire a whole new generation of cyclists. And before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can check it out at sidetrack.com. I'd also like to take a moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. You can find out more about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They really do help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Lael Wilcox. I guess we'll start at a logical place. Um, It would be awesome if you could just introduce yourself, tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you. Yeah, I'm Lael Wilcox. I'm an ultra-endurance bike packer from Alaska. <laughs> what does an ultra-endurance bike packer do? Yeah, basically I do uh, self-supported adventures all over the world with my bike. Um, so that can be in a variety of trails, roads, um, different places. And it's basically carrying what you need uh, to survive out there. And this is both for racing and touring. Um, so I really got into the sport from commuting just getting to work, that turned into riding across the U.S., turned into riding all over the world for seven years. And then uh, during a trip, I entered my first race, which was 1,400K in Israel. I had never done anything like that. I was the only woman. And by the end of the first day, I was winning by like 40K. And I realized this is something I can do. You know, I, uh, I just loved it. It was point to point. It's a continuous clock. You can't get any help. Uh, but along the way, you can stop at stores. Um, you know, you can, you're basically just living on the road and doing it as fast as you can. And whoever gets to the finish first wins. Um, so I just loved, uh, how unpredictable that was and the places I got to see and was immediately hooked that, um, that's what I wanted to do. So I came back home to Alaska 
and a week later left and rode my bike down through Canada, uh, something like four, 3,000 K to Banff, Alberta, uh, to the start of the Tour Divide race, which is, goes all through the Rockies from Canada to Mexico. It's a mountain bike race. So I rode to the start, took another week off, and then raced. Um, and then in that summer broke the women's record by three and a half days. And, you know, I was just like, I, I, I just loved being out there. Yeah. It's like a lot of sacrifice and super physically and mentally hard, but also so exciting what you get to see every single day when you're covering so much distance. That is unbelievable. There's so much to unpack there. I don't even know where to start. (laughs) Um, I guess let's start at the commuting. So I think there's a lot of people out there who listen, uh, sorry, who commute. And I know there's lots of people who listen to this podcast whilst they're commuting. So how do you go from commuting to work to suddenly deciding to veer off, turn left and not go to work? And just keep going. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I was, I never, uh, I don't know how to drive. I've never owned a car. I used to just walk everywhere. Before I was a cyclist, I was a runner And then I got a job at a a brewery that was something like six kilometers away from where I lived. And I realized, well, I can't reasonably walk there and back or run there and back every day. So I started borrowing a bike just to get to work. And then, I mean, at first I was like, this is so hard. There was a huge hill on the way home. I was like, why would anybody do this? Uh, But, you know, you get used to it. Everything becomes normal over time. And I thought, well, if I can I I started riding all over town and then I rode something like 80K to visit my sisters uh, because I didn't have the money for bus fare. So, and then I was like, well, if I could ride 80K, you know, to the next city over, I could ride across the country. Uh, And so that's what I did two months later. I, and I thought this is awesome because it's really inexpensive as long as, you know, you can find somewhere to camp every night. Um, Beyond that, you just really need money for food and, I mean, you can, you can buy pretty inexpensive food too. I think I was just eating rice and beans, but I didn't care. You know, I was, I was just happy to be on the road, to be on this adventure where I didn't know where I was going to sleep every night and I had to figure it out along the way. And that was really hard at first, but, um, yeah, I just loved being out there. And this was like right after I'd finished university. So I really thought, you know, I'd go on one trip and then I'd I'd have this experience and then I'd go back and go to medical school and become a surgeon. And then I just never stopped doing it. And this was, I mean, 15 years ago at this point. Um, so I'm still loving what I do. It's, it's changed a bit over time, adding in the racing. And I mean, now I'm a professional. I can't believe I get to do this like as a job. Uh, before that I'd work at bike shops and restaurants all over the country. I'd, you know, finish a trip out of money get a couple of jobs, save as much money as I could. And then six months later, head back out. And there was, I mean, I feel super fortunate. There were always, they always need people to work in restaurants and bike shops and do this kind of stuff. And I'm a really, really hard worker. So I would just come in and I tell them, you know, I only, I'll only be here for six months, but I'll work really hard. Any shifts you can give me and, and just do the best I could to um, save money to go do it again. Um, And that was the first seven years of, of my kind of bike touring. I mean, before we get into like, you know, cycling around the world and, and the big, big, big stuff, I, I'm really interested in the psychology of like almost permission. You know, you, you were just like, oh, I'll ride 80 kilometers to my sisters. And you say, you know, I couldn't afford the bus fare, but like that takes a degree of confidence, right? 
I guess, or like a excitement maybe, you know, cause I was like, because I didn't think, oh no, I'm not going to go there. And I was like, I don't have the money. And then, you know, this idea came where I was like, could I do this? Could I actually make it? And at the time I had like a fixed gear bike, you know, it was my first bike that I actually bought and it was $500. It was a fixed gear. And I thought it was like the coolest bike in the world. I was like, this is amazing. Cause I just, you know, I borrowed somebody else's bike that was like size extra large. I could barely like get over it and pedal it, but I still used it. And then I got one that actually fit. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, I rode that bike until the crank fell off. I was just like, and then I got like this old bike from the eighties and I was like, this is the best bike. And it was $300. Uh, and it was the best bike. I mean, it was like this old road bike it was amazing, but I couldn't fit a rack on it. So I couldn't carry panniers to like carry gear. So I just had like a saddlebag and I had very little stuff cause I just couldn't fit it, which almost was better. Cause it's like, then you have a lightweight setup. It's more fun to ride. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just a, it was just, I just wanted to be out there. So I was like, by any means possible, really. What was it that hooked you, do you think? I don't really know because I kind of like for several years, I still was like feeling like, cause I was traveling with my ex-boyfriend and I was still feeling like, I wish I was doing adventures on foot. Like, I wish I was running because I loved running so much. It was like my happy place. So then I'd be like on a bike trip, leave my bike behind and go for a run and then come back to the bike because the bike was the vehicle. I think what's what got me hooked was uh, that it was easier to carry stuff and that you could go farther and that you don't have to like necessarily focus on like one track. You could like kind of really quickly like change plans and go different places. It was like much more flexible. Um, to use the bike. And then I think eventually what, why I liked it is because I switched to, I started on like road riding and then I switched to kind of dirt roads and mountain biking. And I realized, wow, this can really take you to some interesting places. Like, you know, you see how people live and there's nobody out there, but the people that are out there are super kind of hardy and kind and um, and you get to more beautiful places with greater views. And I think that that's what got me because I was like, it's such a cool way to connect the dots and, um, and to kind of experience these places for yourself. You're not just watching the news. You're not just reading a book. You're actually like traveling through it, talking to people exposed to the weather. Uh, and then it's like along the way you, you have to eat, you have to find food, you have to find somewhere to sleep. So that's like kind of forces interactions. Um, and I found that everywhere in the world, people were just so kind and, and friendly and welcoming. And they, I think they don't feel like threatened by me because I'm like, you know, a woman out there on her bike, like, what am I going to do? So then they're just like, they basically either are curious or they want to help me or they're like, wow, I want to do something like that. You know? And I loved all those elements too, but mostly I've just, I think maybe I'm, I just like to move. So it's like any way I can. And the bike is so much more sustainable, like compared to running or walking, it's like a lot easier on your body. So, you know, now I'm 35 and I'm like, well, I'm getting older, but I think I could keep biking pretty much forever. It's so amazing to just, you know, and the way you speak about it, like you're obviously so passionate about it and it's become, you know, such a huge part of your life. But I don't know. I mean, I guess the tr I was going to say what was the trigger point, but I guess the trigger point was cycling to your sisters, right? 
Pretty and, much. Yeah. I was like there and then I made it and I was like, wow, I can't believe I made it. And I was super tired. And then I was like, well, I could go farther, you know? And then I could go like, I think during that ride, I like imagined like what it would be like to be like day after day, like that's your lifestyle. And I really liked that idea. Um, so yeah, that's what got me going. And so then what was it, forgive me, cause you gave me the kind of the, the short version, but what was it you did after you'd cycled the 80 K? Yeah, I went to my sister's house. Uh, there were both of my sisters were there. One had just come back from Italy, and she gave me a hundred dollars. <laughs> it was like because I was so broke. She's like, "Here, this is for you." And I was just like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" You know, it's like food for the next two months or whatever. Um, I had some ice cream. You know, I think because I had the money, I took the bus home the next day. Um, and then I was like, I want to start like riding now, you know? And it was like, I was uh, just about to graduate, but I didn't have any money, like zero. I don't, I think I was just a dreamer. So I went back to Alaska, got a job near Denali national park, uh, to save money for like a couple months and then hit the road. So that was kind of the plan. I had to, I had to get so a little bit of savings to be able to live out there, um, yeah, and then the first trip was riding down the east coast of the U.S., so up to, from Portland, Maine, up to Montreal, and then down to Key West, Florida, which is the end of the road, the farthest south you can go. It's like 90 miles from Cuba. Um, and then I, when I got to Key West, I saw these people riding pedicabs, which is like the bicycle taxi around town, and I was like, wow, that's so cool. So I got a job as a pedicab driver, you know, like taking tourists around Florida. And then actually it wasn't that cool. <laughs> I thought it would be such a great job. I was like, wow, this is really cool. I'll get paid to ride my bike. And then I was like, you know, I'm like taking these people around where I was like, they should probably actually just walk, you know, it's like, instead of getting a lift or they say stuff to me, like, are you really going to be able to carry us? And I'm like, well, just get in or don't get in. You know, it's like not really my problem, but you're basically like a cab driver, taxi. But it's amazing that like even before that, you know, just not to be like overly philosophical or intellectualize it, but like you just described this incredible journey through the USA, which like for most people is the trip of a lifetime. And it was like, yeah, so I did this. I went there and then I became a pedicab driver. But what was the, <laughs> I mean, how many months did we skip in that? I think it was like two months and it was, I, I mean, I think we started, you know, in like early fall. So it was getting really cold. So it was like basically like freezing temperatures were like chasing us down the coast. But that also was super beautiful because the fall autumn in the East coast, it's like you have these fantastic colors in all the trees. So, you know, it was like basically, riding through these beautiful, like colorful, changing tree colors all the way south. Um, and I'd never spent any time there. I grew up in Alaska. I went to university in uh, Tacoma, Washington. I'd always just been on the West Coast. So to be somewhere else was uh, really cool, but also a huge shock because it's so much more densely populated. Uh, there are so many more people and it's so much harder to uh, camp. You know, because I didn't want to pay for camping. I was like, no way. I'm not even paying $5 for a campsite. I don't have that budget. So then I'd just be like sneaking around, <laughs> like get to a city park and set up in the dark and then try to leave before light. And I remember feeling like 
kind of stressed about that because I was like, I don't really know where to go. This is probably illegal. Um, but that actually like helped me learn where to actually try to find campsites. You know, it's like, and usually it's like you go up a hill or you go up a mountain, you look for a green patch on a map and like, generally that's okay. Or, you know, depending on where you are, you just knock on somebody's door and ask if you can stay in their backyard. Uh, that works too. So it was definitely a lot of learning of like, where could I actually sleep along the way? You know, what do I actually like to eat? Um, all those kinds, all these kinds of things. Did that work, knocking on doors and asking if you could sleep in their backyard? I don't know if I did that in the U.S., but I've definitely done that uh, all over South Africa because it was, it's all fenced. And it's like they don't have public land. Camping's not normal. So I'm like, well, you don't want to just like camp on somebody's property and not talk to them. And that totally worked. And usually they'd like invite me in. They're like, oh, we'll just have a barbecue and cook some fresh lamb. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> um, other place, I've done that in France because I went on like this bike trip and I didn't bring a tent. And then it was raining and I was like, uh-oh, like, what am I going to do? I can't just like sleep in a field. And I knock, I like, like really nervous, but I'm like riding down the street. And then I see somebody with like a really nice minivan with like stickers on it. And I was like, oh, these are probably nice people. So I just knocked on the door and I asked if I could like sleep in their garage. And the lady was like, uh, I don't have a garage, but you can sleep in the house. <laughs> so I did. She had like a little daughter. She had a party with her friends. She took me to like visit her neighbor's that were like growing watermelons. I was like, I mean, that was like the coolest is like, you're just dropped into somebody else's reality. You know, like all of a sudden you're like, they're a visitor hanging out with them and their friends. And then the next day you like leave and say goodbye, but then like, you might actually go back and visit them again someday. Like I've had that where it's like, you just make friends on the road and then you're like, well, if I'm passing through, I'm definitely going to go try to see them again. Yeah. And I, you know, I really want to talk to you about the cultural side of it, but I think maybe we'll talk a bit more about the big journeys first. So and yeah. you, I, I, I don't know if I've got this right or wrong, like I did all my reading beforehand, right? So you cycled around the world and it took 11 years. Basically, I was riding for like seven years, touring half the year and then working half the year. And then I started racing. So then it became more of like a balance of, for the first three years of that, touring, racing and working, and then I got sponsorship so I could just tour and race. Um, and that's been since like 2018, I think. Um, yeah, but, but that... it's not always continuous trips. Like one, one trip, I was on the road for like 10 months. The first three months were in Europe. Second three were in South Africa. And then the rest was in the Middle East. And that was like, I had done these longer trips where I was like, I'm riding up the West Coast of the U.S., and then it was like a constant headwind. And I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. But I felt so like stubborn, like I'm just doing this. I have to like ride from this point to this point. And then at some point I realized like nobody cares. I don't, it's like the only person that would ever care about this is me and I'm not having fun. So why would I do it? So then after that, I'd be like, whenever the weather would turn really bad, I'd be like, I want to get out of here. And then I would just like look for like sunny forecasts somewhere else. Like basically like going from Europe, I'd be like, oh, you can get a really inexpensive plane ticket 
from Athens to Cape Town. You know, I'd look for like a cheap flight and then good weather and then just go mm. for it. I, so it's it's just amazing. Like, I've, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people, right? And it just sounds like there's so much spontaneity to all of this. You just go, oh, I'm going to go here and then I'm... And then just... that was like the most fun part of it was like, I would be like, I have no idea what I'm going to do next month. You know, and I loved that because I'd be like, wow, now I'm somewhere new. You know, that was that was how it was for several years where I was just like flying by the seat of my pants. You know, it's not quite like that anymore, but it's not that different either. And how much of that did you travel solo? You know, I really only started riding solo uh, when I went back to Alaska and then rode from home. Um, And then... uh, yeah, that was my first long solo trip. Before that, I was always riding with my boyfriend at the time, which is such a crack up. Like we, you know, we had like paper maps and no smartphone. Like, I don't even know how we like made it work. It's like, how did I even like buy plane tickets? You know, I had like nothing. I was probably like, can I borrow your computer to look at weather forecast? I don't even know. I can't even remember, but somehow it worked out, you know, but then, yeah, you'd be like out on the road and be like, I always felt like afraid I'd get lost. Yeah. But really you'd like ask directions from the people you met on the road. And then like some places, like we traveled in the um, Copper Canyon in Mexico. Uh, It's really, really beautiful Canyon, but it's very remote. Like uh, just like, dirt roads between villages. And then some of these villages, people had never even seen a map before because we're like, Hey, how do you get to like this place? Is this the direction? So you'd have to like ask them like the closest town because they'd never been like more than, you know, 10 K from home. I mean, there they have this like culture of indigenous runners, like not everybody has vehicles. They don't have bikes. Um, they, they like hadn't even heard of like villages that were like 50 K away, like never even heard of them. It was like, Whoa, this is like mind blowing, you know? Cause I'm like trying to show them a map and point and they're like, what is that? I, I couldn't believe it. But in those first few years, like how that it must've been so transformative. Like how did those experiences change you as a person? Yeah, I loved it. Um, I think, you know, I, I think I was probably more scared, like, because I had no experience. So I had like no idea what I was doing. So then, you know, you're more scared of like riding in the dark or where are you sleeping or who are you meeting, you know, but I think the thing I liked was that I realized like, you don't have, I didn't have to be so kind of like goal driven, Like, I didn't have to, like, I have to complete this road with no help from anybody, you know? Because I feel like sometimes there's this idea that if you're on adventures, you have to be totally self-reliant and, you know, you can't, like, ever hitch a ride with somebody or, you know? And then I realized, like, actually, it doesn't matter. You You could have a lot more fun if you incorporate that stuff. If you're not, like, so tied to an idea from the start. You could just, like have the best time you can out there. Yeah, things are going to be hard. You're going to be stuck in like frozen rain. Or I did one trip down the West Coast of the U.S. where it rained for like 33 days in a row. And then I was constantly looking for pavilions to sleep under, you know, like parks 
because otherwise everything was just soaking wet all the time, you know? And then that's also was some of my motivation to, you know, leak, skip town if the weather's bad. It's like, oh, I'm never doing that again. If it's going to rain for like the next two months, I should go somewhere else. And I, I find it so interesting because in a way, like, forgive, almost forgive the phrasing, but it's very deliberate. Like, it's almost like just hobo lifestyle, right? Like, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was like sleeping under a pavilion and I woke up and somebody had like left a brown paper bag full of food next to my head. It's like, they're like, put like a bagel in there, you know, they're like in like some granola bars. And I'm like, that's really kind. And also, I'm a little freaked out that I didn't wake up. Well, yeah. But it was pretty cool. But I was like, and like a stick of beef jerky or something. They're like, these people need food. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, Which is true. <laughs> I was going to say, it's probably appreciated. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> you just start eating breakfast. <laughs> But so, and I asked this question like wholly compassionately, um, deliberately, but like if you didn't have an end goal or a time in the mind or a route that you'd drawn in a red line on your map, like what was the point? Just being out there, you know, and I think there were always, it wasn't that there was like no goal at all. It was like you start the trip with this intention that you're going to ride this route then something comes up along the way and you change the plan. So you have like a flexibility of changing the plan to something different that is going to be more fun. And that would even, and then it turned more into like finding interesting routes around the world, like that other people had designed. And a lot of these, like, you know, around like 2010 or so were, um, race routes that people were developing for like bikepacking races. So these were point to point self-supported races. Then we realized, well, if somebody made this route, that's a local, it's probably pretty good. So we could try to follow that. So we started touring race routes and that's what eventually led me to touring this race route in Israel. And then I realized I'm still going to be here when the race happens. So why don't I just do the race? Uh, and then I realized that was something I was actually good at because I had no idea. I just had my touring set up, running shoes and a very inexpensive bike. And, but I knew how to like live on my bike. So basically I had, I had the most experience of anybody in the field, but they were like, she's a joke. You know, it's like, what is she doing with a cotton t-shirt, you know, and this like crummy eight speed bike. That's what's so amazing about it is like, you know, you'll have had all of the people and no disrespect to them, but you'd have all these people training in their extremely expensive gear on their bikes, you know, getting in on the Saturdays or everything, you know, but mm -hmm. you were a lifer, right? You had thousands of days under your belt. Living. Yeah, I was just doing it every single day. So it's like, oh, yeah, I know where to put my sleeping bag. I know where to find food. You know, I know how to pack up quickly. So it was like I, I like had my system dialed. And you must have been insanely fit. Yeah, from riding all the time, you know? But then people are like, oh, well, you're just touring. Oh, you're just commuting. If you're riding your bike, you're riding your bike. You know, it's like the, the commuters are the fit ones because they ride every single day in every weather condition. You know, it's like they're like the tough people. They're not like, you know, just going out for a Saturday with their friends. Yeah, it's so interesting. And so that was that the first race? Yeah. Well, okay, so that was the first self-supported race. The summer before, I had done a 400-mile uh, 
road race that was supported in Alaska. And that was an out and back. And I, cause I'd been riding like on my days off, I was a bartender and on my days off, I'd ride as far as I could. I borrowed my mom's bike. She had this like pretty nice road bike. And then my friend was like, you are totally ready to do this race. And I was like, what? I was like, no, I'm not. It's 400 miles. I mean, that's like more than 600 K. I was like, is that even possible to do in one go? There's a cutoff time of 32 hours. So you had to finish in that amount of time. I was like, I don't even think I could finish it. Uh, but she was like, you, you could do this and I'll be your support crew with my Jeep. <laughs> so we did it. We had no idea what we were doing. You know, it's like, how do I get, how does she like hand me food while I'm on my bike? She, like she was like throwing it in the air. Like I was going to catch it. I was like, this is not going to work. Um, but we did that the summer before. And that, I think that was the first time I realized like I could really go long distance. Cause I ended up finishing in like 27 hours. I was second, uh, to a guy that was on a recumbent. He beat me by like 12 minutes. I had no idea he was even there. Um, and then I was like, I finished the race and yeah, of course I was tired, but I was like, I'm not that tired. I could, I could probably keep going, you know? So then I was like, oh, I guess like this is something I could actually do. Um, but I didn't think about it like for the self-supported stuff. I just, I mean, I think at that point I still just wanted to be a runner. So I didn't really care. And then, you know, I go on this 10 month tour close to the end of it, enter this race and, and then realize this is actually, this is actually the like exciting part is when you're out there alone. You don't have your friend with the Jeep. You're not like trying to catch potato chips out of the air. You're like riding through, you know, old city Jerusalem, like looking at the vendors and then thinking, what could I actually get to eat and pack on my bike and keep going? Yeah, I just, you know, my next question is super simple. Please, can you tell me the story of that first self-supported race? Oh, the self-supported race in Israel. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh my gosh, it was amazing. Um, it, they're, so Israel, they're like fanatics about mountain biking, which I didn't know until I went there. They're actually building a trail, the Israel Bike Trail, which is single track across the whole country. Uh and it's fantastic. It's like the southern half of Israel is desert. Northern half is like Mediterranean. Um, and then it's like this really fun flowy trail. And so we were touring the, tr the route. Then like these locals, you know, saw us riding or something and asked if we could come ride with them. And they're like, you should really do this race. They were all preparing for it. They have like a really strong sense of community there. They're like, everybody's hosting us and showing us around and helping us. And then I was like, well, this is like a really cool place to uh, try to race. And I think just from like talking to all these people, I was like, yeah, I'm going to give it a go. So I line up, you know, with 40 guys. Um, and I'm just in like tennis shoes and a t-shirt on an eight speed hardtail that I bought for $400 uh, with my bike packing set up. And like the night before they'd all stayed in a hotel together. And I was like, no way. I just like slept in the dirt. And like heard like Jekyll's screaming in the night, you know, I was like, that was like my race preparation. Then I like line up with them and, um, and I was so excited. I was just like basically sprinting for like the first few hours. And then of course, like these other strong cross country mountain bikers passed me, but then into the night, they all like stopped riding. They're like, you know, they have to get dinner or they have to like go sleep. So they all stopped riding. And I kept riding until like, probably like two in the morning. And, and then I was like, 
you know, I pull, I stop riding. I didn't know where I was because there was no way I could tell. I didn't have a smartphone where you can see the trackers. Um, but I just pulled over, you know, got my sleeping bag out, slept in the dirt for three hours and then packed up and, and like got up and I woke up so excited to just keep going. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I continued from there and then we, everybody in the race ended up like, like they have like that very, like lots of clay in their soil and everybody was like stuck in this mud. Uh, I almost, I like had to cross, it was flooding and I had to cross a river. I like almost lost my bike. And eventually I make it to this like bakery owned by Druish people. Um, and <laughs> I mean, I was just in there like shaking, freezing. They're like bringing me food. The guy who owned it went down the street and bought me a sweatsuit. <laughs> like a hoodie what? and pants because I was I looked like so wet and cold and then um from there somebody from the race came to find me um and they told me that they were like stopping the race there because all these people were like stuck and had wrecked their bikes and they're like we're gonna transport everybody 200 kilometers south and then we'll restart there so <laughs> So they like uh, shuttled us all into the desert and then we started again the next day. And I was like, what the heck? I was like five hours ahead of the guy in second place. And now I have to start with him again. I was like, this isn't fair, but I just did it anyway. So in the end, for the second half of the race, I got second overall to this really, really lovely guy, Neve, uh, that's a mountain bike racer. In the first half, I got first overall. And then, you know, after you have an experience like that, it's like I ended up staying at Neve's house and meeting his kids and uh, all these like women came out to find me while I was riding because like Israel does not have a culture where women like compete in sports. Like they participate, but they're not like supposed to be really athletic. They're definitely not supposed to beat the men. So all these women came out though and they were like, it, they were like, you did it. Like you did it for us. Like you proved that women can do this. And they were like so emotional because they'd been like, so like put down for their whole lives. You know, they were like not supposed to be athletes. And because like, I came from a different culture where I was like, I'm not going to like not do this. And then the, you know, some of the guys were like super kind to me about it. And some of them were like, like very, very angry. Uh, because they were like, there's no way that this could happen. You know, they like, <laughs> they had like these forums on the internet, all in Hebrew. I had to like Google translate this stuff, but it would say stuff like that. I was a genetic mutation, like, like X-Men. Like that's the only way that I, as a woman could possibly beat them. Like they're like trying to rationalize like how this could happen. Uh, and I was, I was like very weirded out. But it also kind of made me motivated because it's like we don't have that strong of like a kind of sexist culture in the U.S., but there's definitely some of that. And I was like, well, how, how could it be more exciting than to like try to beat all the men? So then I'm like, you know, I have to try my hardest. I have to go out there and do my best because like it also proves that women are capable of doing this stuff, you know, and it's like I don't think I'm the best athlete. I'm just there and I'm trying hard and I, I want to give it my all. And then maybe, you know, the next generation or maybe somebody else, another woman's like, has the courage to go try. 
and you know she might be faster than me then she might beat all the men too and like that's like the progression of the sport that I want to see I want to see everybody like trying their hardest because when I like am beating the guys then they try way harder because they're like oh no I can't have a woman beat me you know and then it like raises the bar of, of the competition which I really like yeah and there's you know I worry that that toxicity does exist everywhere where actually men, I shouldn't say, you know, it's that not all men thing, but men don't like being beaten by women. You know, lots of men don't, right? Like they hate it. Yeah, I know. But then it's like most of them, I don't know. It's like at the end of the day, you all like tried your hardest and then you can like sit down and have a meal with these guys. Like they don't actually hate you. They just don't want you to beat them. Um. But yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, I think it overall is positive, but it's definitely something like, you know, cause I look at these, I look at the sport and it's like, well, when I show up to a race, I'm usually the only woman or, you know, maybe there are like two other women out of like 160, you know? And I'm like, well, why aren't more women showing up? And I think, you know, I'm always thinking about this, but it's like, well, they were never encouraged to do it or they, or they never believed in themselves because like all the people around them have been doubting them. They're like, you're not strong enough. You couldn't do that. It's too dangerous for you. You know, all these things. But so I want to like show that they could actually be there, you know, and, and that because it doesn't, it's not like, uh, it's, they, they don't, they're not weaker necessarily because the braces are so long. So much could happen out there that it's not about being the most muscular or like the strongest obviously because i'm very average size but i think that's what's i think particularly like adventure sports and particularly endurance sports like the gap is so small or even non-existent actually like if you look at rock climbing as another example you know that the, there sort of isn't a gap like the best women are right. as good as the best men really i think yeah it's a great leveler you know these long yeah. endurance challenges generally yeah i think um, it's super exciting and when you say, you know, you were the only woman showing up, is that, you mean like international races or is that true at home as well? I mean, there's, I've never gone to a race where there's been more than 10% women. That's um, what, I didn't expect that to be the case in the US. Yeah, it still is. Yeah, I, I mean, it still is. I think maybe one race I went to was like, there were 20 women out of 180 and that was like a huge number that was like, wow, there are so many women, you know, uh, there are some races though, that I've heard about, like there's a race in, um, England called the GB Duro. And last year it was 50% women. And so I think actually the UK and England is doing, uh, really well for this stuff, uh, which is really exciting to see, you know, so maybe it is getting better. Um, but I just, I just haven't experienced that yet. But that's, that's my hope. It's like if there are more women, and it's also like it's not, it's not all about, you know, winning. Of course, I want like a woman to win overall, but I also want them all to try. You know, if they, if they want to be there, they should all feel like they can be there and have their own experience. And a lot of this stuff, I mean, the thing that's really cool about bikepacking is that generally there's no entry fee and there's no prize money and there are no qualifiers so anybody could show up that's why i showed up 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, this, no, it's great. I, it's a great point. I think it, it's its own little niche thing, though, right? Like it's, you know, it's not yeah. the 100 meter Olympic medal, you know? Right. Yeah, no Olympics for bikepacking. Right. <laughs> So do you, I'm, I'm disappearing down the rabbit hole now and I'm conscious of not staying there too long, but what do you think about, I don't know, is there is there just overall winner or do they do men's and female, men's and women's races within this spot? They usually like do say, uh, you know, the first woman or the women's record, but then I'm like, well, what if I get the overall record? Then do I have the women's record and there's a men's record that's slower than mine? Well, I mean, That'd be so cool. I was going to say that would like, be cool. Why not? You know, but I don't have any overall records right now. I don't think, I mean, I've done like time trials where I do, but not in like, I won like outright won a race across the U S in 2016. And that was like, people were like, wow, I can't believe that happened. <laughs> but I do like, I think, you know, this idea of like records and races, it's, it's just so motivating because it's just like, it almost sounds impossible. Yeah, and it's I've never thought about it like that. You raise a really interesting point that I, I'm definitely not going to answer it. Maybe you will, and maybe we'll just leave it open. But, like, I was going to ask you if you found any power in the whole men's and women's record thing. But, actually, I, I, I sort of always felt like, actually, let's just have a winner. But, actually, yeah. maybe having a women's race and the record is faster than the men's, is a that's a great piece <laughs> of progress. That'd be pretty cool. It would just yeah. be like so different, you know, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like I want to race against the whole field, but I also don't want to take it away from other women that want to like have, you know, a women's winner and a women's record because it's like, I want people to feel good about their accomplishments, you know? So it's not for me to say, you know, we should take away gender categories. It's like, I don't want them personally, but I don't want to like say other people what other people should do. You know, it's like yeah. they should they should do what they want to do, and then you be celebrated for their accomplishments, and that's all great. Um, yeah. But I do think when people say, "Well, you won that race," and they mean that I won, I was the first woman. I'm kind of like in my head, I'm like, "Well, actually, I was six overall." You know, it's like yeah. for me, that's how I think about it because I'm like. Cause then I'm like pretty excited that I'm six overall, you know? So usually I say like, I was the first woman in six overall. Like I give both because I don't know, because I am super proud of being a woman and like having the fastest women's time in something. But I also like, liked it to reflect the entire field. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, I think that's really important. I, and, and like you say, it's, it's for you, right? Like that personally is important to you. But I yeah, also who think else that cares, you know, it's like, who cares how fast you ride across the country? Yeah. Well, at the end, I mean, well, that, that's a whole different thing. It's like, <laughs> does it even really matter? But yeah, there's no. a, there's, 
there's an awesome example of this. You might know, I mean, you probably do know, but there's the the Spine Race in Britain, which is supposed mm-hmm. to be the toughest, yeah, the toughest ultramarathon in Britain. Some people would say Europe, but um, maybe it was last year. Uh, um, Jasmine Paris, like, She won. has, like, a child. She was, like, so she... Like, nursing her child. Yeah, she that won overall. unbelievable. She didn't just win, though. She won, she broke the course record overall and she was expressing breast milk at the aid stations unbelievable like Like, what a rock star (laughs) yeah and you know that will 100% change the way people think totally because they're like women aren't capable if you have kids you can't do this you know it's not good for your health it's like look what this woman did well, there's, again, we're in rabbit hole mode, but, like, there is, I saw on Instagram, um, Shauna Coxie, who's, like, you know, one of the best rock climbers in the world, um, gold medalist, etc. She's pregnant, and she's on a climbing trip at the minute with her husband and a few friends, and the comments, like, she knows yeah. she's not going to fall off easy boulders. It's like crossing the street for her, and she's getting Wait. slammed on social media. Yeah, uh... it's, there's there's work to do. Stop commenting. People just do the thing you want to do. You know, yeah, yeah. focus on focus on your thing. I feel yeah, like sure. unless unless you're like it's positive. You know, the negative stuff. It's like I don't know. Yeah, I mean, just don't go there. Yeah. So how much? I, I'm always really like wary of talking about this too much because I'm not having these conversations with men, and I really feel like we should just start doing it. But how much? does the whole like representation getting other people into the sport matter to you and there's no wrong answer to that oh it matters a lot to me yeah i i spend a lot of time and energy encouraging more women and girls into the sport um and i do that through a variety of programs i've i just started one here in tucson uh, a couple weeks ago tucson grid it's for 11 to 14 year olds i provide the equipment we ride together two to three times a week to build up to a final camp out and it's a mix here. Some of these girls have ridden bikes a lot. One girl just learned how to ride a bike for the first time last week. And the following day, she rode 20 kilometers. Like from the park we met at on a bike path onto like a bike lane in traffic. And she did it. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was like, I've never, ever seen anything like that. And, you know, she's 11. And then it's like, if she hadn't learned now, when she would, when would she have learned to ride a bike? And basically the, but the motivation is that, you know, they're gonna put sleeping bags onto their handlebars and we're going to go out and camp. Um, so they have to like, get ready to do that. Uh, I love that stuff because like, I didn't do it as a kid. You know, I didn't start riding until I had to ride to get to work. I learned how to like pedal a bike, but I just never rode bikes. And and I, I started this program in Alaska. I did it for three years there. And now I'm starting to do it in Arizona too. Cause I'm like, how much fun is that? And it's not competitive. It's just like getting ready for an adventure. Um, and it's, it's the hardest thing that they've ever done. You know, they've never, most of these girls have never ridden more than like 10 K. And then at the end we'll ride with them something like, like, uh, 70 K over two days. So, uh, I think that stuff like that, it's like, I just, it it also, it like really inspires me. It's a lot of work. I'm terrible at organizing, but I just do it because I really like want it to happen. I also run a a women's scholarship program where it's like, they have to design. I've done this twice in Alaska, once in Mexico, where they have to design a thousand mile bike route and then tell me who they are, 
what their budget is, where they want to go, why they want to go there, like an application process. And then somebody wins like all the equipment and a travel stipend to go do it. Uh, so I did that last year and in two years ago. And the first year, I think I had like 160 applicants from all over the world. The age range was 14 to 76. And then it's like, these women are coming from like just different parts of life. But then for, I mean, I'm not, this is like, I'm not paying them. They have to like figure out how to take like basically six weeks off of their regular life to go do this. And they were like so full of passion to like want to do it, you know? And the, I mean, that's just amazing. And it's just like, yeah, they get a bike. Great. And then so many of them that didn't get the scholarship, they're like, well, I have a bike and they just did it anyway. I think like at least like two dozen, you know? So then I'm like, that's, that's incredible. But they like, you, you have like two dozen women riding in Alaska that wouldn't have been there otherwise. You know, I just think this stuff, I get these ideas and I'm like, I have to do this because it's just so cool to see like what happens. And then, I mean, I literally meet these women on the road. Like, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I applied for the scholarship. Now I'm doing it. And, and then they like, you know, end up doing all kinds of bike adventures just from that. How does it make you feel? Great. I mean, it's also, I think the thing is like, it kind of balances me out because um, if I was just like only racing or only doing my own thing, I think over time it'd feel more like just the same experience. You know, it's like not that new. It's like, yeah, I know I can ride 200 miles a day, uh, whatever. You know, it's not that exciting. But then when I see like somebody else take on a challenge and overcome it, and they feel so excited about that. And then they have like a new plan that kind of reminds me that like, this is actually like amazing opportunity to be able to continue to do that. So uh, it kind of reinvigorates my passion for the sport and, and where it can take me. Yeah. And I, I have to ask, I'm backtracking seriously. It sounds like a tangent, but there's method in the madness. Like, I think it's important to talk about what you were like as a kid, because two reasons. One is... <laughs> You said you didn't start riding until you were 20. And I, I often have this thing that, like, I, I think that, I don't know this, but I suspect that lots of people listening suspect that everyone just was, like, born into a, you were born into a cycling family. You were cycling before you could walk. You know, you cycled the length of the world when you were eight. You know, I think people yeah. assume that. And also, I think all of those men in Israel thought you were a cyborg or an ex-person. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, what were you like as a kid? I was, uh, oh my God, I love sports. I was super shy, but I like, I played basketball and then I played soccer and I was super competitive. I was a terrible loser. I was like so hard on myself. Like if I lost, I didn't want to like talk to people for hours. I'm like, <laughs> I think about it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, like why, you know? And then I think, I think over time I lightened up a bit. Um, of course, I'm still extremely competitive, but not, it doesn't bring me to a negative place. Like I'm like, I'm excited about competition. And if I don't win, that's fine. If I try my hardest, that's all I can do. Um, but yeah, that's what I was like as a kid. I was quiet, shy, very focused, very good student. You know, if it, if it wasn't perfect, I was super upset about it. <laughs> very like, uh, yeah, I put, I put so much pressure on myself. Uh, even my parents would be like, you need to like, like take it easy on yourself. You're too hard on yourself because like, I would just like beat myself up if I messed up, you know? And then, 
I'm not like that anymore. Thank God. Yeah. I mean, that's just not fun. It's quite a tiring way to live. Yeah. Um, So, you know, we talked about childhood. We talked about all the traveling and you said life wasn't that different now, but what is your lifestyle like now? Yeah. Now, I mean, now I'm, I'm busier. Um, because I do like such a, uh, variety of like, like this girls program, the scholarship, I'm hosting a few women's bike packing challenges in Europe where we 50 women will ride routes together. Um, not like totally as a group, but we'll leapfrog along the way, try to finish in a week. Uh, I, I have like a probably, I don't know, six or seven races lined up for the summer. Some are like, you know, self-supported road race, self-supported mountain bike race, a couple of stage races, one in Kenya, one in Iceland. Um, so I'm just like, you know, I put together a list of things I might want to do. People reach out and ask, Hey, will you come to our race? And if it seems like something that I want to do or it, or it fits in the schedule, then I, then I try to do it. So it's a lot more, just a lot more volume of everything. Um, but I mean, like at the same time, it's like, it's exhausting, but I also don't want to miss these things because they're such amazing opportunities. So, uh, it's a bit more of that. I also do, you know, make videos, um, to share my story. Uh, a lot of that, my wife is a photojournalist, so she shoots photos and video, and then we collaborate with different companies to share stories from races or rides, um, which is, I guess, a part of my job. But I like that part too, because then people see those videos and connect. Uh, but I also like just creating opportunities because it's like, they're not just watching me do something. They're like, I could do that. And then they show up and they do it. You know, I feel like that's the best way to actually get people out there is create something that they imagine they could be part of. And then they go do it. So it's, it's a mix and every year's a bit different. You know, I think I have right now planned out to like November which is a lot more than I used to plan. I used to not have like a plan for the next month. Um, but that's, that's good because I'm like excited about all the things coming up. And, you know, you say like you're married now, life's changed. Do you have a base where you stay? Mm-hmm. Or no I bought way? a house in December and I was just thrilled. <laughs> I haven't been like a house guest or renting a room or living on the road for, you know, since I was 20. Uh, and I finally bought a house and I love it. It's just amazing to have a space and it's in Tucson, Arizona. It's sunny all winter. I grew up in Alaska where it was dark and cold all winter. So I really am just like enjoying the sun and being outside, having breakfast outside every day. And, um, it's been a good place to recover a bit from the last year. Spent a few months just like being based in one spot and just going for day rides and, uh, hikes and runs and you know just like kind of getting grounded again yeah uh, it sounds like such an awesome life it's such an amazing story totally unique actually which is you know hmm. nice and fun if you're me um <laughs> <laughs> um uh, so i'll wrap it up because you know we're nearly at time but um well we are at time we're slightly over but um i always ask people two questions at the end of every podcast so just interpret them however you wish but um what scares you? Death. <laughs> I mean, really, <laughs> I'm scared of death. Uh, oh, I'm scared of getting injured because then I couldn't do the thing I want to do. So I'm very cautious. Like I don't take a lot of risks, mountain biking, because I don't want to crash. I mean, of course I crash all the time. It's just part of biking, but I try not to because I'm like, oh, if I break my arm, I can't ride my bike for like two months. 
you know, and then I'd be devastated. So yeah, that's my fears are death and injury. <laughs> and uh, that's a pretty good one. I don't have that very often, but really, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, if you're not scared of death, you're doing pretty well. I don't know. I'm not that scared. Well, no, that's a different. That's a bottle of wine conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a different conversation. Um, what brings you hope? Oh, brings me hope is, um, you know, like the, the girls, the grip program I run, seeing these girls like improve so quickly and gain confidence so quickly. I'm just like, that's incredible from one day to the next shaky and afraid to like going down trails. I just can't believe that. Um, I'm also feel a lot of hope from when I see like other women doing great racing and being positive, or I see other women's groups around the world, like connecting people that are going on, taking on challenges that they wouldn't have done otherwise. Uh, I love when I'm not involved in these things, <laughs> when it's like somebody else that I can be like a fan of. I'm like, great. Somebody else is doing something really great. And I could just be a fan of them. Amazing. Cool. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much. I know you've got a very busy life and lots on. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Great to talk with you. Thanks for listening. To stay up to date, you can follow along on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and is produced and distributed by Ola O'Murray and Alex Hall. If you want to get in touch, then you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. And finally, please do leave us a review on iTunes. They really do help.